Radio Mano Papachango. Ladies and gentlemen, coming to you from the sailboat, still on the sailboat, still not writing as much as I should be, but I'm trying, I'm trying. I don't know, I think this may be Dr. Ryan's last book, if um, if I can't figure out a way to make this experience more enjoyable. Um I don't know. Last book under a deadline anyway. I think from now on I'm going to um uh I'm going to refuse the advance money and just write the damn thing as I write it and have it be out when it's out and not feel these deadlines hanging over me. I don't know. It doesn't feel hunter gatherer. That's the thing. It feels like I've painted myself into a corner, a farming corner, and I've got to harvest. And if I don't get out there and harvest these fucking fruits and vegetables, they're going to rot in the field and I'm going to be screwed like a farmer who didn't get his harvest in on time. The rains will come. And uh, yeah, yeah, you know, I don't know. I don't know if this is like... um, if this is just me bullshitting myself or if there's some sort of universal significance to these things. Um, but I look back on my life and I see that the times I'm happiest are the times where my life has been most hunter-gatherer-like. And this is far before I started really thinking in these terms or, you know, making a living as any sort of a, you know, modern spokesman for ancient lifestyles or whatever the hell I am that at this point. But um, yeah, I look back at my life and the times when I've been happiest and felt most fulfilled were times where I had the least amount of material possessions and was mobile, uh, moving, feeling free and feeling physically fit because of the movement and, you know, eating minimally and, and just sort of I felt light on the planet and I felt good. And uh, then when I got bogged down, I got unhappy. And I was talking with a friend about this the other night. I think the least happy year in my life was the year I went back to New York after having been in Asia for a while. And um, I had this incredible job. It was the best job I've ever had, the best job you can imagine. I was getting paid a shitload of money. I had one boss who was a very close friend of mine who trusted me implicitly. And he basically just said, you know, run the show. Let me know if you need me. If you don't need me, just make a decision. I trust you'll make the right one. And and just set me loose. And so I had nobody looking over my shoulder. Nobody knew when I showed up or when I went home or how long my lunch break was or what I, I, I was just completely independent. And as I said, I was making tons of money, totally free, living in Manhattan, had a nice apartment in the Lower East Side. Um, I think I was 26 years old and I was so fucking depressed. 
Um, and I think the reason I was depressed was that I had gone backwards. I had, I had left New York. I'd quit this job, the same guy, but an earlier job. And I'd gone off to Asia for a year and a half or whatever it was, traveling around, feeling great, moving forward. And then he got in touch. He had this other project, invited me back to New York, said he'd pay for my flight to New York. And, you know, we could talk about the job. If I didn't like the job, he'd fly me wherever I wanted to go and I could just pick up where I'd left off. And I thought, well, nothing to lose there, right? So I flew back to New York and he offered me this job with all these great bonuses and great conditions and and I thought how can I say no to this this is this is amazing so I said yes and then I went you know within a week I was fucking you know I won't say I was contemplating suicide because I wasn't I I but I was fucking depressed I was I felt horrible and it took me a long time to figure out why and I think I, the reason is that I had found something. I had found something that worked. I had found somewhere that I was happy. I had found a project that needed to be continued, and I had interrupted it. And and uh, yeah, that was a hard year. I'll talk about that in a Toma episode when I when I finally get back to doing those. I know. Thank you, those of you who remind me every week or so that it's been months since I did one of those. I'm trying to finish this book. I promise you, when I finish this book, when this this sword of Damocles is no longer hanging over my head, oh, oh, the Toma episodes I'm going to do, the Roma episodes, the Soma episodes, oh, it's just going to be a podcast potpourri around here, believe me, because that's the thing. I enjoy doing this podcast. I really do. I mean, I was supposed to be writing today, and I said, well, got to get a podcast done. And I feel guilty doing this because I enjoy this. I enjoy sitting here talking to you in a way that I do not enjoy sitting here writing for you. I don't know. Anyway, enough of me bitching about that. This episode this episode is with a guy named Johan. Now, those of you who listen to this podcast with any regularity know that I can be a bit of an asshole. And one of the manifestations of my assholery is that if I know a woman that I really like, um, and, and this isn't, I'm not talking about women I'm romantically involved with uh, necessarily. I'm just talking about any woman that I admire and find attractive in any of a million different ways that women can be attractive. I have the tendency to sort of assume that any man that woman gets involved with is unworthy of her. I don't know if you feel this. I don't know if everyone feels this. Because I probably haven't admitted this out loud before, so it's not something I've discussed with people, but... Um, my, I have the, a bias, uh, of believing like, yeah, you know, this guy's going to be a dick or he's going to be whatever. He's going to be inadequate in some way. Not that, not that I'm any better. I realize that there's just, and I'm not a jealous person in, in general, but anyway, so here's the thing. Last week's guest, uh, Riva is someone I've known for a few years. She's brilliant. She's beautiful. She's, as you know, having listened to the podcast, she's smart as 
fuck. She's funny. She's free thinking. She's wonderful. Now, of course, Riva Riva is also like, you know, 20 years or 30 years younger than me, whatever. So I'm not talking about there's no hanky panky with Riva, but hey, Riva is fantastic. She's one of the most attractive women I know any way you define the word attractive. And so when I heard that Riva had this boyfriend and he was German, <sighs> German. Um, yeah, okay. I admit it. I thought, yeah, I'm probably not going to like this guy. Well, this is Johan. This is this week's guest. Johan um, started out in a hole. Uh, and it was co- totally unfair and totally, like, you know, it makes no sense, logically. If if Riva's so smart and Riva's so great, which she is, then why would I assume that she's going to want to spend her time with a guy who isn't uh, up to her standards? That that makes no sense at all. But, okay, there it is. There it is. So I met Johan. I sort of assumed, like, yeah, this guy, you know, whatever. Johan's fucking fantastic. He's fantastic. and And I'm an idiot. So that's the lesson of this episode. Okay, let's move on to something else. Um, Johan, well, just before I, I leave Johan behind here, Johan has spent seven years based in the Galapagos Islands. He went down there on this educational thing. He, he had that kind of moment that I said that I had abandoned when I went back to New York. He found a place where life made sense somehow. He just felt like this is, this is it. This is my place. And Johan, unlike me, Johan didn't, like, uh, drop it. Now, I got back to it. I got back to my project. But Johan found a way to stay. Johan found a way to be useful. He found a way to continue to be in the Galapagos in a way that made him valuable to the people there, brought some quality, additional quality of life to them. Um, and uh, you'll hear his whole story. It's a fantastic story. It's very inspirational, especially for those of you, us, who are always looking out for a path that nobody else has cut through the jungle before, or looking for a way to go where we want to go um, that's unique, that's that's individual, and that uh, that doesn't damage the place we're trying to get to. So I hope you enjoy this episode. Johan's a special guy. And um, yeah, I hope I'll be invited to their wedding. (laughs) Anyway, enough about that. Uh, What's going on with me? I stepped on a sea urchin the other day. That was a first. I've never I've never done that before. And um, Yeah, so I was um, just diving off some rocks here. Very unsafe place to be swimming, but, you know, feeling reckless. Diving off these rocks into the ocean here on Gran Canaria. And um, coming back, swimming back up to the rocks, sort of, you know, finding rocks to stand on as I was getting... It's a breakwater, so there are all these huge boulders and kind of slippery and uh, I was with a friend and we're talking I wasn't really paying much attention and suddenly oh my god oh the piercing pain in my foot I didn't know if something had bit me maybe there was an eel I don't you know it was just like unthinking pain 
And I looked down and saw there's a sea urchin, which is better than looking down and seeing a shark or an eel or whatever. But okay, so I've stepped on a sea urchin. I've so I I get out of the water and there are five or six of these black, like porcupine quills in my foot. And you know my foot's like throbbing and tingling and oh my god, you know. And I've never stepped on a sea urchin, so I don't know. I don't know how dangerous they are. And I'm with this friend and. Um, she had recently been traveling in um, other parts of the Mediterranean, and, and I guess there are different species of sea urchins, and some are more dangerous than others. And so she was pretty concerned um, because places where she had been, I guess they're more dangerous. And so, oh, fuck, I don't know if I have to go to a hospital or or what's going on here. So we get out of the water and walk in into the marina, and there's... Um, uh, marine supply shop so i'm just going to go in there and find out right away do i need to call an ambulance or what and i go into this marine supply shop and there are four or five guys standing around talking about you know whatever the hell they're talking about in there and they look at me this like wet panicked white dude you know hobbling in everybody turns and looks at me and i say in my goofball spanish that i just stepped on this thing i don't know what it's called it's black and has spikes and it's in the rocks and they're like oh yeah blah 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 del mar whatever it's called here and i'm like yeah do i need to go to the hospital what do i need to do and they all just looked at me like they're like yeah you know we step on those all the time just don't worry about it it's fine you know it's like so that was simultaneously very good news and a humiliating experience which, um, you know, that's a combination that is not that unusual in my life. Getting good news that is also humiliating. Uh, so, yeah, totally unnecessary to panic over that. Came back uh, to the boat, soaked my foot in vinegar uh, for a while, which I'd read online was good because it dissolves those little spikes somehow because they're made out of calcium or I don't know what the fuck, but... Anyway, didn't even pull them out, couldn't pull them out. They were too far in anyway. And got up the next morning, forgot all about it, walked around, put on shoes, walked around, and forgot anything had ever happened. And now I'm totally fine four days later. So there you go. Sea urchin, no problem. I'm not going to step on another one if I can help it, but uh, but no big deal. And uh, r- scrambling around on the rocks... Um. Yeah, this friend that I was with, uh, I guess, doesn't have a lot of experience scrambling. And so she was kind of unsteady on her feet, and I was worried about her slipping because the rocks are green. They've got, you know, there's some definite slippage possibility there. And, And I was reminded of, you know, talking to her about scrambling and and you know essentially what i was saying is like what's dangerous is that you're so far away from the rocks that's because if you slip and fall you're going to fall far so what you want to do is turn around get down on your your feet and your hands and then sort of just back down the rock so if you fall you're you know you're going to fall very little and um you know, that reminded me of this feeling of how sometimes our instincts lead us in the wrong direction, you know, um, and, you know, if we say the danger is the rocks, the closer you get to them, the less dangerous it is. And I was thinking about rock climbing one time I did this rock climbing uh, class 
and how the instinct is to hug the rock. You want to just, you're terrified and you're trying to, you're going to get as close to the rock as you can. But what that does is that makes it impossible for you to see footholds and handholds. And so you have to overcome your instinct. You have to sort of move away from the rock in order to be more secure with it. So the instincts often take us in the wrong direction. It's interesting to to think about those sorts of situations and uh, how sometimes you really want to follow your gut and sometimes your gut is sending you exactly in the wrong direction. It reminded me of a book I read a long time ago by a poet, German poet named Marie Rania Rilke. Um, it's a collection of letters that he exchanged with um, a fan, a young fan, about life, about sort of giving advice how to deal with life. It's called Letters to a Young Poet. And it was kind of poignant because I went and looked at it again online the other day. I hadn't looked at it since I first read it in the early 80s because it was a it was something I read in college. And um, yeah, you know, when I read it the last time, I identified with the young poet who was getting the advice. And this time I read it on the internet which didn't exist last time I read it. Um, and now I identify with Rilke, sort of trying to give advice without sounding like the old man on the mountain or anything. And one of the things he said in, in that book that I remembered from 40 years ago or whenever the fuck it was that I read it, 30 years ago, I guess, um, was that sometimes you want to do exactly the thing that feels the most difficult. That thing that feels like it's the worst possible thing to do, sometimes that's exactly what you need to do. So I was thinking about that in terms of scrambling on the rocks, in terms of rock climbing, and in in terms of the job I went back and took in New York that was like, oh, how can I not take this? This is the perfect offer. It's an amazing job. Yeah. Yeah, it could have been an amazing offer. It would have been an amazing offer at any other moment in your life, but not right now. And timing is everything, right? So in that case, I should have done the difficult thing, which which would have been to say no and to um, to continue to do what I had planned, which was going to Japan to teach English. That was my plan. I even bought new shoes. I had new shoes for job interviews in Japan. That's how close to it I was maybe I just didn't want to put on those new fucking shoes maybe that's what it all comes down to anyway uh, that's enough thank you for those of you who have signed on at patreon.com I sent you a special special what do they call it Um, because the people at patreon every once in a while they send me an email you know like here's how to increase your patron participation and all that kind of stuff and um, i'm supposed to give you exclusive content so i did i sent people who have signed on at patreon even those people who have signed on for merely one dollar a month they received exclusive content i won't tell you what it is but it has something to do with feline sexuality should I tell you? No, I'll wait. I'll wait. Um, I'll tell the rest of you eventually. But my Patreon patrons, they got to see it right away. Uh, 
that's it. Thank you for people who um, support this podcast on Patreon.com. Thank you for those of you who support the podcast through Amazon. Uh, I haven't mentioned it in a while, uh, but the way to do that is to click on the Amazon link on my site at ChrisRyanPhD.com. And then when you land on Amazon, bookmark that motherfucker and use that as your Amazon page. So anytime you just use your bookmark and it's got some little code in there that tells Amazon to send this podcast about 8% of whatever you spend at Amazon. It's amazing. It doesn't cost anything extra to you. And somehow, for some reason, Amazon is willing to send me 8% of whatever you spend. On average, it varies between 5 and 10 depending on the type of product, I guess. Um, I don't know how long that's going to last. That seems like the kind of thing that they're going to just, you know, one day send out an email saying, eh, it's over, you know. But for now, it's lasting, and it's great. And it provides, um, you know, well over half of the funding that comes in to support the podcast. So thank you so much, those of you who are doing that. Those of you who signed up for Fund What You Love, that's over. Uh, Danny has shut that site down um, for reasons that he can explain. But in any case, that's not happening anymore. So if you signed up for that, uh, you won't be receiving any more billing. You won't be paying anything else. So please shift it over to patreon.com if you want to keep supporting the podcast that way. And of course, those of you who, um, you know, times are tough, don't worry about it. Uh, it's beautiful to have you here. And someday you'll strike it rich and you'll support some other podcast, my podcast progeny. I am going to play you out with a song by Carsey Blanton from her new record, which is called So Ferocious. It just came out last week. Um, I would really encourage you to go to her site, carseyblanton.com, and download the record, uh, the whole thing. It's you pay what you like. Give her 10, give her 20, give her more, give her whatever you can, um, because this is Carsey Blanton coming into her own as an artist. I've been a big fan of hers, as you know, for quite a while now. I think she's doing something that's important and beautiful and so, so true. And uh, this record, in my opinion, is the best thing she's ever done. She just keeps getting better and better. And um, I'm going to play every song from the record eventually um but uh i'll just try to do one a week and you know remember of course i'll forget some weeks because that's just how things go around here but um i'm going to start with uh, a song called loving is easy it's a love song now you might be thinking oh another fucking love song that's what the world needs right more silly love songs by the way Fuck Paul McCartney for writing that song. God, I hate that song. This is not a silly love song. This is an unsilly love song. There are millions of love songs in the world. Most of them are full of shit. Most of them are goddamn propaganda trying to convince you that love is about possession. Love is about ownership. Love is, baby, you're the only one for me. Love is about stalkers. Every breath you take, I'll be outside your window with my dick in my hand watching you. What the fuck, Sting? Anyway, this is not that kind of love song. 
this is a love song that actually, in my humble opinion, knows what the fuck love is and expresses it shamelessly, beautifully, and yes, Carsey Blanton, ferociously. Catch you next week. Adios, amigos. I'm in love with you, but it's alright. I fall in love nearly every night, and it fills up my heart till I can't keep it in. So I hope you don't mind if I say it again. I'm in love with you, but it's okay. I fall in love almost every day. I'm in love with the boys in the band down my street. And with every good poet I happen to meet. Cause loving is easy, it's taking a breath. I do it all day. Till the day of my death I don't want to own you You don't have to stay Just as long as I've known you I wanted to say I'm in love with you Is that a sin? Just look at the state That you got me in When I think of your hands Of your eyes Of your And humble and young Cause I'm in love with you, honey But don't be afraid I fell in love With the love that we made But it's none of my business If you could love me You don't have to earn it I'm giving it free Cause love is easy gentlemen i am uh, this is the third podcast i recorded in my visit to miami florida i'm extracting it's like squeezing an orange i'm getting all the juice out of it i'm with johan say your last name <laughs> johan bessera bessera johan bessera uh which means what besser in german means better right so like the better one Are yeah you the better, better than better actually really <laughs> okay and uh, and you are, I know you're a very interesting guy, which is why I wanted to have you on here, but you're interesting. The mistake we've made is we've hung out for a few days before doing the podcast, which is good because now I know I have a sense of what I can talk to you about, but you're going to have to repeat yourself and pretend it's the first time. I, I was just thinking that before we started this recording, actually, that we've been chatting all morning and yesterday and the day before and just had great conversations. and. 
now I feel like on point. It's like, okay, now, now say something sensible for right. TV. No, <laughs> no, you don't have to say anything sensible. But you're, so let's start with the main thing. You're, uh, you've been in the Galapagos Islands for seven years, is that right? Yeah, I've been in and around the Galapagos since 2005, uh, when I first went there on a summer uh, study abroad trip with the University of Miami during graduate school. Ah, so you were a student. I was a student. In the program that you're now helping to run, essentially. Um, yeah, that's a slight overstatement, maybe. That's but, what um, I do. That's uh, <laughs> yeah, no, they, the University of Miami and the program um, that I went to are now one of my organization's clients. Yeah. Right. So you host the, the students down Yeah, there. my organization hosts the University of Miami with uh, study abroad trips coming down uh, for shorter intercession groups or uh, full semesters abroad, actually. Uh-huh. Um, and we got the facilities and the staff and um, we provide local knowledge and connections and um, permits and travel uh, arrangements and right. um, all the logistics basically behind it. Um, and the university brings their students down, their faculty down, and they accredit the courses also, most importantly. Um, right. I guess we don't have to have our own accreditation. Um, but you also teach in the program. I used to. I used to teach for the biology department. We are currently not working with the biology department anymore. Mm. And so I have not taught since fall 2014. Mm. But I did teach for three semesters down there. Right, right. Um, right now I'm actually back in, in graduate school myself, uh, getting a PhD at UM, no less. In and what? In international studies. International studies. Um, but unrelated, international studies department, very unrelated to what we work with, uh, which is now entirely focused on uh, the marine science school. Mm. And you're doing work in the Galapagos, sort of supporting sustainable development and community building and things like that? Yes. Um, we kind of rebranded recently, and our slogan used to be conservation through education. <coughs> now, whether that's still a valid concept, of course, and, and we didn't do a full 180 on, on, on what we do, but we just rebranded a bit to empowering isolated communities um, to grow in a sustainable way. So, yes, yeah, sustainable growth. Um, uh, is in there, empowerment is in there. We're trying to create stewardship basically in the local populations where we work uh, so that they can protect their own environments and we do believe that uh, protection of such environment can only happen after certain basic human needs are met right. in a Maslow pyramid type right. uh, uh, way. Um, and therefore we don't actually concretely necessarily work in conservation you know, we don't, people think conservation is like, okay, build a fence, protect that animal or the plant or whatever. You know, we don't, we actually have built a fence to protect the nesting ground, but that's not what we do. What we do is we work with the school system, with the national park, we do a lot of capacity building, uh, we bring in resources, we, we, we work with the existing system rather than uh, like a bottom-up, inside-out approach, rather than coming in as a, as a foreign organization with all kinds of good ideas, which you know, science and education levels that the foreign organizations have are usually higher than the local um, population. So there is a this tendency of aid organizations at large or conservation organizations coming in with great ideas and implementing them to help that animal, that right. ecosystem, this cause, right. um, that need, local need to be met. Um, whereas what we try to do is assist in the local system that already exists and make it better. 
so that they can run their system of conservation and education and social development. And we're there to listen first and foremost and then coming up with smart ideas how to combine that with what we do. So all the students we have, for instance, um, work in local institutions as interns. Mm. So there's a certain knowledge and cultural transfer, um, the cultural transfer being important as the Galapagos are recently connected to tourism, or increasingly so anyways. When I first went there, there was hardly any tourism in, in, in Isabella, the island that we're on. How many islands are there? I don't exactly know. There's 13 larger ones, uh -huh. four inhabited, and then a bunch of rocks and minor islands. Uh -huh. so I'm, not, I'm not exactly sure. Right. Four inhabited ones with approximately 30,000 population, maybe total. 30,000, and that's year-round? That's year-round permanent, right. yeah. It's, Galapagos has a weird immigration of its own. It belongs to Ecuador, but it has its own migration, so you can't immigration rules. So you don't get a passport from the Galapagos, but you have a residency card. Uh -huh. And so if you're Ecuadorian, you can't just move out to the Galapagos and live there permanently and work. You, you know, it's kind of like an immigration you have to do. You have to have a local sponsor, an organization. That organization has to prove that there's no local labor available uh, that they can work with. Kind right. of like, you know, getting somebody to come to the U.S. Right. to work here. Right. Um, and so you, how, you have to be born or married in, sorry. Right. How, I, I mean, I know the Galapagos are really famous because that's where Darwin had his insights with the finches and, you know, the, the evolution seemed to be taking place differently on different islands. So I guess the islands are far enough apart that the finches couldn't fly back and forth, right? They were isolated populations. Right. And, and they're, they're traveling. They're sitting on a <clears throat> tectonic plate that's moving towards... Um, South America and moving under South America. Actually, we've seen it in a recent earthquake oh. in uh, northwestern Ecuador. That's the um, Nazca plate moving under the South American plate. So the islands are actually closer to Ecuador now than they were when Darwin visited. Yes. They move at about the rate, I heard this in popular science somewhere, um, that your hairs and fingernails grow, <laughs> which is uh, over an inch a year, actually. Over an inch a year, yeah. All right, so before before we go on with this, what's the name of your organization, just so we it's get the that? the Intercultural Outreach Initiative. Intercultural Outreach Initiative. So I will probably refer to it as IOI. Right. For, for is there a website that people can consult to see what we're talking about? Yes, there is. It's IOI.NGO. Quite easy. IOI.NGO. All right, that's easy to remember. Good. So we're talking about the Galapagos. So you went there as a student. When you did your you did your undergraduate at University of Miami in what? I did my undergraduate in Germany actually. Oh, I'm born, Germany. born and raised German. Right. Um, in international business administration, had relatively little to do with um, marine science, which is kind of what I'm working in. Maybe uh, not even because I am actually doing business administration, running this organization, um, but kind of a marine science groupie. That uh, I always like the ocean and just hanging around right. um, <clears throat> the environment, I guess. And there was a long story why I ended up studying business administration. And to cut it short, is because I didn't know what else to do with myself. And then that's what you do when you don't know what else to do, right? right. Because it always makes sense. It's what your parents tell you. Um, so after that, I I kind of wanted to go to America. I had done a, an exchange here in high school, 
in the Florida Keys and taken some marine biology and really liked it in the mm. ocean and the snorkeling and the diving. And you're a surfer. And I'm. Were you a surfer? I wasn't a surfer at the time. Oh, so you picked that up. I picked right. that up in the Galapagos, actually. Oh, really? Um, mm. So I wanted to go back and study marine biology after I was done with that boring business administration degree, and nobody would take me. Um, without an undergraduate in at least biological related sciences, right. something. Right. Um, and the University of Miami had a, had a program, and a master's program in marine affairs and policy. And they would let you in with an economics degree, I think, was the requirement. And I, you know, the difference between business, business administration and economics kind of got lost, I guess, in translating mm -hmm. the, the transcripts. <laughs> um, Nicely done. So uh, <laughs> I... Um, I got my I got my masters at UM and went on a trip to coastal anthropology field work in coastal anthropology or something like that wow. uh, with a professor who then ended up uh, being my advisor for the master's uh, degree um, and we went to Belize and it was just spectacular my first time to the developing world and uh, the first time to Latin America and it was just changed my perception of um, what was available in this world and what I wanted to do with my life and just a very impactful two-week trip only. Two weeks? Uh, How old spring, were you? It was a spring break trip. I was, it uh, must have been 25. 25. You went to Belize and I've, I've never, I've been to Belize but I came in from Guatemala and, uh -huh. and then turned around because I had hepatitis, I, I sort of rushed back to Guatemala City, so I didn't really see it, didn't do any diving, but from what I've heard, the water there is just incredible. Spectacular. Yeah. We spent some time out on Glover's Reef, it's an atoll of, hmm. off the coast there with a huge wall to dive and drop off to, I don't know, 3,000 meters in, in a, a channel there between Cuba and, 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 and Central America. Very spectacular, very basic, simple life. Yeah, um, it's mostly black Belize. It's yes, not Latin yes. the way we think of Honduras or Nicaragua or whatever. It's it's mainly slave descendants. Right? Um, slave, I'm not 100 percent sure, presumably. Yeah. Um, but uh, how uh, how they got there? I'm tempted to say stranded slave ship, but I'm thinking of a of a black community in northern Ecuador, mm -hmm. Esmeralda, actually where that um, earthquake happened, where we were talking about earlier. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, but it's it's English speaking, um, yeah. un, uh, unlike the la rest of Latin America, and um, with the exception of Brazil, <laughs> I'm correcting myself here. But um, they are uh, culturally, I guess I didn't, I couldn't fathom whether or not anything was different to another place anywhere right, else. It was my first, first time. Place, yeah. What I remember distinctly and what impacted me so much um, was that. People were so seemingly poor. They had so little, so few things, so little money, so little. They lived such basic lives, and you know we surround ourselves with small and big crap in our lives, right? We got all these things. They had nothing. Yeah. They had, their houses were huts, and they were very simple. But I'd never seen happier people. In my yeah. life. These people <laughs> were just living. Yeah. And I felt that I hadn't been somehow. Yeah. And I couldn't even put my hand on it. I didn't know what had happened. People that were on, on the trip with me saw it also. There was some distinct change happening mm. with me during this time. And, and 
Oh, they saw what was happening to yeah, you. Yeah, they saw me oh. change. They saw, they, really? they were telling, they were feedbacking me. It's like amazing, you know, before and after, two weeks later, like a completely changed person. Really? And I'm not sure how or what exactly happened. Um, but yeah, that, I, I got that feedback and I felt that too. You loosened up. I, you German, you uptight <laughs> German motherfucker. I'm telling you. I'm telling you. It's, I thought I was kind of cool and, you know, and pretty chill in terms of Germanness. You know? I've been to the US a bunch, I spent right. a year in high school in the Keys, all right. places, right? Um, but yeah, but. Well, that, that's an insight that, that is a life changing insight that I think uh, a lot of us have had. I mean, I had the same the same sort of insight the first time I was in uh, my first trip outside of the country to Mexico, Yucatan, not far from where you were, and just yeah, seeing how uh, you know the things that we're told were, will make us happy if we work hard and get them security and wealth and all that is completely it's it's, it's either unrelated to happiness or in fact inhibits happiness and then when i got to india holy shit i mean talk about poverty and the biggest smiles ever you know it's just it's it's very um, i remember reading about the pinaha people in upper amazon and uh some anthropologists went in there they're straight up hunter gatherers like you know in terms of material things they have absolutely nothing and uh these anthropo these um, psychologists went in to do some studies with them, and they they realized that there was actually a way to measure happiness, uh, you know, because not like the way we do with self-reported tests and stuff. They just set up video cameras that taped the people just in their daily lives, and then they went back and analyzed them, or had their grad students analyze them, and look at how much, what proportion of the day they were smiling. And it's like, you know, 88% or something. They're just like, they're always smiling and laughing, you know. And, and in this book, uh, Don't Sleep, There Are Snakes, which I've talked about on this podcast before by Daniel Everett, who lived with uh, the Pinaha for 20-some years. Is a, there's a great passage, I quote, in Civilized to Death, where he says, you know, they laugh about everything. They laugh when they catch a fish. They laugh when they don't catch fish. They laugh... When, they're, when the hut blows down in a windstorm, the inhabitants of the hut laugh harder than anyone. It's just like they feel comfortable in their world, you know? And so when shit goes wrong, it's no big deal because they know how to fix it. It's, it's, a, it's a very different way of inhabiting the world. Poverty puts you, makes you vulnerable in a way that I think generates gratitude. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um... It is a different lifestyle. When I went to the Galapagos, I went with a suitcase, obviously, not, not much more, and, um, and lived off of very no much nothing. I was just fresh out of grad school, right? I was, had this idea, started this organization, and um, there, there wasn't anything. I remember selling a wristwatch and some dive gear, you know, just to be able to eat for another month. So living that very simple life, um, was very liberating and it, and it changed a lot of perspectives mm. um, in life and you know what to do with it. Um, so so let's go back a little bit. You you went as a student after Belize. You came back to Miami and then you went to the Galapagos as a student. Right. It's, it's kind of tough to admit my own uh, former ignorance, but uh, 
I, I had no idea where the Galapagos was. So yeah. I had heard about it, you know, it's like, sure, Pacific, off of South America somewhere, you yeah. know, maybe south of California or Hawaii somewhere. Yeah. Um, and man, maybe Ecuador, I don't even know, but I had no idea what was going on there and why Darwin, sure, that, that's about it. Right. I never, I'm not a biologist, right? right. So, um, the same professor that took me to Belize uh, said, hey, in the summertime, by the way, I'm going to the Galapagos. You know, advanced anthropology and coastal cultures, follow-up kind of course. And I was yeah. like, man, this was like one of the coolest trips I've ever taken. I'm getting credit for this. You know, it's like, this is school. And now <laughs> I get to go to the next place. Where, yeah. I'm, I'm in. Sign me up. Yeah. You know, Galahu. Yeah, sure. We're going. Yeah. So this was fun, and, and that's, that's literally how I came to the Galapagos. People ask me, oh, why Galapagos and how? And it's complete chance. Right. Belize was actually the reason why I came to Galapagos, which makes no sense. Well, and this professor, I, I imagine, saw this incredible impact that that had on you. Yes, and she actually um, supported uh, IOI or the idea of IOI and, and, and me. I guess she saw the potential in, in, in you know, so, something there. And she... Uh, beyond being my advisor, uh, was on my board of directors until very recently, oh. for almost 10 years, supporting the organization, and we're still very much in close uh, touch That's and communication great. about it. That um, must be great for her, you know, to see how she took you on this trip and it, it completely changed the path of your life. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, it was a course unlike any other I've ever taken, um, in a textbook kind of way. Uh, it probably had l less graspable content. I mean, we never even there was no textbook. You know, it was field work, and it was field work in and around culture. I'd never done anything anthropological before, mm. and just seeing and analyzing socioeconomic realms, cultural norms, perceptions. And as I was in that state of, well, this is this is another piece of the world that I had no idea even existed at the time. Um, it, it, she, she fostered this curiosity, say, mm -hmm. extensively. And accordingly, she gave us open uh, assignments for the trip. We could basically choose it, you know, pick, pick a topic and write an essay about it. Um, uh, paraphrasing, I'm not sure, it's been a while. But uh, I, th I think I wrote a paper on the impact, the socioeconomic impacts on the declining, of the declining fisheries. Mm. in the fishing communities off the Galapagos. Um, so we've been there for three weeks traveling from island to island and looking at different populations and different issues. Um, you were mentioning the finches earlier. The humans kind of live like that too. The islands are very much mm. separate from one another and there's relatively you know, small overlap in what their issues are. They're culturally very different, mm. economically very different, size is very different. Do you, and like geographically different. Um, so one of the islands, Isabella, where IOI is located, <coughs> has this wonderful tropical beautiful beach and it was very remote. There was no um, like no transport to or from the island. I think we chartered a, a fishing boat to even get there. Um, all of which has since changed. Now it's connected with a small airport and an actual pier and frequent boat ferry traffic to a bigger island. Um, but in the time, during the time in 2005 it was, um, sea cucumber fisheries were a big deal there. And people could make 
thousands of dollars a month um, in the 90s and into the 2000s on sea cucumbers, um, just picking them off the ocean floor and selling them to Chinese flotillas, just waiting to buy these just outside the National Park of the Marine Reserve um, and with brokers on land and there was this big like trade going on. Um, and it, was it legal? It was legal. The National Park had catch limits and yeah. they were fighting with the fishing population. It was a large extractive industries versus conservationists, um, you know, like a social struggle kind of going on. Um, and as the, the, the fishery became under pressure from overfishing, people would dive, they would hookah dive for these things, right? So they get a weight belt and have a, a, a second stage mouthpiece for diving to breathe and, and a hose that would go up to the boat with a generator and there would be a boat tender up on there and be like a couple guys with different hoses, you know, going in four or five directions on, and walking, just picking up sea cucumbers on the bottom to baskets and, and, and bags. Um, so as, as they were depleting the, the shallower areas, um, people would dive deeper and deeper and longer and longer to m make that kind of money or even to make any kind of money on the fishery anymore. And you dive too long, too deep, you get uh, narked, as they call it, nit right. nitrogen narcosis, right. which is bubbles basically, you know, forming in your bloodstream and gives you the bends and, you know, your joints really start hurting, right. but eventually the bu bubbles get big enough, you know, they, they, you get an air bubble in your heart, you die. Right. And people were dying from it. Horrible, and, painful death, too, from um, what I understand. Yeah, presumably, I'm not sure. I guess if, you, if the bubble hits the brain or the, the heart, you know, rather early on and quickly, you just kind of lose consciousness. Mm. But yeah, I mean, the, the bend, the joint pains and whatnot, yeah. in the pre-dying stages or non-dying, you know, just that will go away by itself. But yeah, that's very painful. Yeah. Um, so the, the social impacts on the fishing community with the provider being gone, it's kind of you know what I did with interviewing people and looking at it. And somehow then it came to me, it's like, well, these people need an alternative. They can't go on like this. And I was not so worried about the sea cucumbers itself, they're quite uncharismatic animals actually. Um, something I wouldn't want to eat, but I'll leave that to the Chinese. Um, they, they need an alternative. So I was like, well, if they had English, you know, tourism would, would, would solve all their problems, right? And that was kind of like the notion, the nonprofit sector and conservationist and science notion at the time was, well, let's, let's give education to the extractive sector so that they work in something else, economic alternative right. for, for, for the people that's doing the harm to the environment that we want to protect. It made total sense. And then, you know, tourism was the panacea and of course, turned out to be Pandora's box, not a panacea, but um, tourism is now the main industry by far in right. the Galapagos, and that, that transition has happened over the last 10 years very quickly, um, especially on Isabella Island. And the, there was a large cruise ship industry already um, in the Galapagos, uh, pre-2005, before I ever got there. Um, but they were based out of another port, and they didn't come to this little fishing town. and um, the idea was actually also that conservationists and the international organizations, um, IUCN and, and the UNESCO World Heritage Site, the, you know, forming the national park in the 50s. And so, you know, we want to protect this, we want to protect this. And what do we do? So the 
people to go there to tourism we want to shield their impact from the environment which right. is a great idea um, only that the secondary impacts of the cruise ship industry were kind of not thought about in the early stages so the primary impact of the tourist or the 100 tourists on a boat going to one site is was and is well managed and there's very little impact at that site because there's no development 97 percent of the galapagos is, is um, national park and undeveloped and left in its com completely in its natural state how did that happen because that seems unusual to me that in, in a country is sort of un politically undeveloped as, as ecuador is and was how did they manage to just set that aside and protect it against the commercial interest and and even just settlers who wanted to go out there and you know it's like logging in brazil you can't stop them you know no matter what the government does they still go how well, did they stop them i guess that's the advantage of an island it's, it's, it's easily yeah you can't really get there yeah. in, a, in, in a rainforest in brazil you just start walking from your town and walk further and further and further and you right. put up another hut and then you know have another family and it grows and then you have another village and another town and it goes further in from there you can't really do that with 600 miles of humboldt current so between. the people that i mean the islands that weren't populated they just said that's it they're never going to be populated and if we find you out here you're in trouble right so yeah. ecuador i mean the galapagos islands history is rather recent it was discovered um 1500 and something by some bishop trying actually to get to peru from panama i think it's the bishop of panama um, and then it was whalers and pirates and, right. you know, even one of the biggest ecological problems we have right now um, in the Galapagos is invasive species. So hmm. that problem started man-made back in the day when the whalers and, and, the, and the pirates came, you know, let livestock loose on purpose so hmm. when they'd come back, yeah, they'd something. have something to hunt. Right. Um, but human settlement really only happened in the late 19th century and sugar farming was um, was one of the first things on on the nearest island to uh to ecuador also a big problem at the time and still is is fresh water there's mm -hmm. very little water out there are they volcanic islands they're volcanic islands right. um we kind of interrupted on that there's a hot spot in the northwestern part of the archipelago and as the tectonic plates moving towards South America, these volcanoes that come up as they move, you know, eventually there will be another volcano coming up. So there's this island chain, similar to Hawaii, actually, oh, right. same concept. Right. Um, no, that's my train of thought. Oh, oh the fresh set, water. early settlement, so right. freshwater. So yeah, there's a volcanic crater uh, on the island, on the easternmost island, San Cristobal, that collects rainwater. And this happened, and there's lots of vegetation, so it's more friendly. The further away from the hotspot it gets, the older the islands are, so the more vegetation has already grown, and the more soil there is, and the more mm. fertile the land, etc. Um, so that, that, that was sugar farming there, and then there was some European settlers that came uh, during the Great Depression, looking for paradise and starting new and leaving society behind. Um, Hippies. Yeah, I guess. <laughs> in an early state, Great Depression hippies. Uh, Germans and Norwegians. Actually. Really? Yeah. yeah. And and eventually it was just fishermen. The, the Americans um, annexed it during did, World did War those, II. Did the hippies persist? Did they last? Yes, the they, they, they lasted. There's 
uh, one island, Floriana, has a strong uh, German-European influence, and you can actually see the cultural difference really? still today. Huh. Um, a lot of inbreeding? No, not that I can tell or see. Yeah. I mean, must have, I guess. <laughs> with a couple, you started a population with a couple hundred you people on so, islands. Yeah. Um, Although it's only been yeah, less than a hundred years since those anyway. Right, but yeah. there, there's, there's now almost 30,000 people and you know, tourism and jobs and fishing. And, and after the World War, uh, Americans gave it back to Ecuador. Um, they built the first airport and a couple of radar stations. Oh, the Americans um, occupied the Galapagos? The Galapagos during World War II to protect the Panama Canal as a radio outpost. Oh, really? Yes. Wow. And they gave it back. And they did give it back to Ecuador. I'm not exactly sure when, but right after the war, huh. more or less. Um, and then more and more fishermen. It was commercial. It was just fished, basically. There was nothing going on. Nobody really wanted to be out there. Um, until the gold rush of the sea cucumber started really in the 80s and then hard in the 90s ecuador was had a, a currency called sucre at the time now they're on u.s dollars uh, packed to the u.s dollars and that's their currency uh, after some massive inflation in 2001 um, but before that uh, the sucre was i think worth 25 sucres to a dollar or something like that um, it was before my time, so I'm, I'm not exactly sure. It's, it's tales that I'm retelling. Um, and people could make U.S. dollars in the sea cucumber fisheries from the Chinese. They come mm. in with dollars. And people would make hundreds of dollars a day, where you know the average income in Ecuador at the time was a couple of hundred sucres a month. Right. So there was a massive gold rush. Right. And people would, wouldn't even know what to do with the money. There, there's there was no banks. There was no people like the fishermen of Isabella. There was tales. They had sacks of of hundred dollar bills that they used as pillows, sleeping drunk in the park because you know <laughs> some cheap booze, cana as they drank down there. That's that's all you could spend the money on, really. And you know just people making it rain in the street. The kids picking up the the, the hundred dollar bills. People lighting oh. cigars with hundred dollar bills. I mean, there was a lot of money to go around. Wow. And of course, then you get the whole, you know, the infrastructure of thieves and prostitution and bars and, you know, drugs and all that would follow the money, I imagine. Um, yeah, I wasn't there at the time, so I can't really yeah. tell you firsthand accounts. But yeah, there was, a, there, was a, there was a lot of drinking supposedly going on. Yeah. And um, yeah, there was also a lot of tale of prostitution. Um, there's rumors about San Borondon, a very fancy neighborhood these days, on an island uh, in, in Guayaquil, Ecuador's biggest city, um, that was founded supposedly by the prostitutes of the Galapagos Islands uh -huh, good. that went to, to the take the money back from, from, from the gold rush. Good, smart. And the, the, the women kept the, the, those women kept those, that money together, whereas the fishermen just blew it. Right, typical. And, and a, lot, a lot of that money is, is no longer there or visible in the Galapagos. Crazy. So, okay, so you're, so you're there as a student, you're thinking all this stuff, you're, you're noticing these socioeconomic effects of, of changes in the, the biology and the ecosystem and all that. When did it occur to you that this was, that you could do something there? That, I mean, did you just say, like, I want to live here, I got to figure out what to do? Or did the idea come to you first? Or how did that it work? It didn't. It came to me like Galapagos came to me, by complete surprise, actually. So I didn't know where the Galapagos was, and I just went to have fun, basically, on a school trip. 
And then I wrote this paper and my professor, um, Sarah, to give her a name, um, she encouraged me to, she read my term paper, I got an A on the paper and she, you know, encouraged me. I was like, oh, this is so impactful and, you know, I was talking to her and she was like, well, why don't you write your thesis down here and expand on that paper? Mm. And so I had a topic for my thesis and I was right. like, sure, this place is awesome, it's paradise, you know, I can, I'll go down there and do my research and expand on this class paper. So that the class paper turned into um, my my thesis. It was a master's thesis. Master's thesis. Right. Uh, I don't remember the actual topic of it, but yeah, it was somewhere along the lines of starting a nonprofit to benefit uh, conservation in the Galapagos with a concept of education. I'm right. badly paraphrasing right. my own work there, but um, something along those lines. And it included a business plan for what is now IOI, the Intercultural Outreach Initiative, my organization. Um, but it didn't actually occur to me until I was done with the thesis that this would be my life. You know, <laughs> so I, you were sort of writing about a hypothetical thing someone could do. Somebody and you're should like, do Fuck, that. Fuck, absolutely. Could do it. I, no, not even. People pointed it out to me. I was completely <laughs> blind to it. I was, I was writing all this up and I had all these great, smart ideas that, right. you know, graduate school and the anthropological concepts and education and all these, you know, idealistic things you want to do. Right. And you're writing it, you're writing it, and eventually somebody is like, so when are you going back? I was back in Miami, right? I was going back and forth a lot. And, and I was like, no, I'm done. I'm graduating, you know, and I'm going back to, I'm going back to Germany. I had a girlfriend at the time in Germany. Oh, really? Yeah, and uh, this was, you know, my one and a half years master's to go back to Germany and, you know, live with her happily ever after and, you know, life con would continue. And then I was like, well, you know, hon, I'm not coming back. I'm going back to the Galapagos for a three months research. And she was like, okay, well, that's cool. She was supportive and said, you know, yeah, I'll come out there and spend three months. This is the legal limit. You can be out there without a visa. And so she spent some time out there and then she went back and I was like, well, I'm not done. So I'm staying another three months. So I stayed and I turned to six months research trip. And then I was back in Miami after that. And I was like, well, I kind of need to go back to Germany now. She'd be really upset with me if I don't. And somebody was like, what well, are you, you're not going to continue doing this? And I'm like, no, no, this is like somebody really needs to do this. You know, this is a great idea. Definitely somebody needs to do it. You know, I've written it all up and this is... <laughs> good on me, right? Yeah. This is great work, so right. somebody needs to do it. Right. Somebody, so somebody it pointed it out, I forgot who it was, I don't remember, probably at the university bar over a beer, it's like, dude, you're the guy. Right. Who else was going to do it? You've already done it to here. You've got you're the, the guy. Yeah, you know it. So I was like, yeah, well, shit, maybe I'm the guy. And so I became the guy, I guess. It wasn't such a bad prospect, um, of course, and so I kind of just slid into that situation and went back and started doing it as a as a corporation with a with an Ecuadorian university um, a corporation that didn't last in the long run because they had different ideas um, they hosted our study abroad trip in the Galapagos there so we had some contact and um, they wanted to build an, an oceanographic research center um, in the tropical eastern Pacific and they already had an outpost in San Cristobal Island and they wanted an educational outpost and they wanted to build this research center in Isabella Island 
so I, it was quite timely and I said well this would fit greatly with my project you know we could tie in the University of Miami and we can bring in international funding and this is how you can fund your science and you know I'm going to be the guy responsible for outreach and social programs and local education and that kind of stuff development conservation and they're like great that fits let's do it we'll do the science you do the social and the policy and the conservation stuff we'll go into this together so I founded uh, the nonprofit it's a 501c3 here in Florida um, and went back to work at that institution setting everything up and they bought a property where to build IOI essentially right it was then even called the Isabella Oceanographic Institute along with their science plans uh, we then later hence IOI hence IOI and hence the now rather lengthy name because we wanted to keep <laughs> the logo and the acronym and you know that's how people knew us in Ecuador right. that was the Fundacion EOE right. so you know the intercultural outreach initiative was a halfway slick solution to the right. problem of actually getting away from the Oceanographic Institute which we never ended up being yeah. and never from my part of the organization never wanted to be it was right. always an educational and outreach organization right. Um, so the, then as the relationship with that university deteriorated um, I basically went from San Cristobal where it was based uh, working with this university to Isabella to tell all the people that I was done you know I was out I can't work with these people they don't, they're not going to give me funding for social and outreach and all these promises it's empty and sorry I promised you the, you know the world and but I can't do it, all they want to do is science and, you know, understandable from their side of point of view, I guess, in hindsight, but, you know, my idealism was a little bit destroyed. Mm. So I went and said goodbye to all these Abilenios that I work with for a weekend only. I, I had flights out already and flew on an island hopper plane over to say, say it's not going to work. And this guy, Peter, uh, Peter, I forgot his last name, damn. Anyways, so Peter stops me in the street and says, oh man, that's a real shame, you know. Why don't you talk to the local priest? Maybe you can, you know, like the priest, what, what I got to do with the priest and the church and not even religious at all. So just talk to him. He's got this like building there, you know, maybe you guys can work something out. You can, you know, I, the university kept property and they were going to build their thing. But Peter saw that what I was trying to do and supported it and connected me with the local priest. Angel, Angel Calderon, and Angel supported the idea, instantly loved it. He had an old Franciscan mission. He had just become posted to this parish, and he had, you know, was young and ambitious and had all these ideas. And I was kind of in the same situation. He was like, "Yeah, sure, we'll do a corporation, and you can use my facilities. You renovate them, and you can use them, and you know, we'll do a long-term agreement, and you know, your upfront investment will pay the rent later." Um, an agreement that we're still under with the Catholic Church actually 10 years later huh. and so I ended up staying uh, in Isabella renovating this Franciscan mission um, learning a lot actually <laughs> I was you know some suburban some suburbia kid from Germany I didn't know much about uh, electricity or plumbing or, right. or roofing or what, all kinds of things I mean all the way to digging a well is what I did down there huh. so a lot of like real hands-on work in the early days right. brought my dad down brought some friends down really cool project. The priest always helped. I mean, I have a good friendship. I'm still not religious, but he was able to accept that. Um, and yeah, it, was, it took a whole year to renovate the place. 
did some fundraising, friends and family, and small scale stuff. And, um, when it was finally done, the end of 2007, it was there and it was finished and we were like, okay, so now what do we do? You know, and I looked at my business plan from back then and the situation and socioeconomically had changed and tourism was kicking in and basically the thing was for the bin. I was like, great, now I did all this and what do I do and where's the funding going to come from, right? And any NGO's problem, basically, where's the funding going to come from? So I remembered how I first got to the Galapagos. I was like, this was a really life-changing at that point already event for me. So we can institutionalize this, right? So study abroad um, became uh, our income source, basically. Mm. So we run now study abroad groups and I went back to the University of Miami and back to my professor who brought our first group, you know, back to the Galapagos, a group of hers and ran it through Sarah. us. Sarah. Right. Sarah brought a group back and, and Christmas Intercession 2007 was our first group. If you, if you have a daughter, you should name her Sarah. <laughs> you know, <laughs> she has been probably the most influential person in my life yeah. uh, at this point. Yeah. That's amazing. Out of, out of all the teachers. And the, the, the one teacher tells you about it, alternative teaching styles, right? The, the, where I learn least in terms of an you know, academic classroom setting. Right. And I know, you know she's often criticized for that at the university and all that. Mm. I can only say that, I mean, it was very formative and, and even the university itself is not benefiting from what, you know, what she saw right. back in the day. Right. So it's, it's, it's funny how those things come full circle sometimes. So she still comes down to teach actually with oh, us. Oh really? Is she still at the university? She's still at the university. She's still teaching twice a year. She does the first class of every semester. When we bring down a semester of students, these kids come down like I did, you know, big-eyed and wonder about the Galapagos and Latin America and many of them have not been outside the U.S. And so she does that anthropological intro to the Galapagos, right. socioeconomic history, you know, background, right. so that the kids, all of, uh, of which live in, in host families and local families, get you know this door opener through her, and she teaches them, similar to what I had learned. What's fantastic, so if you boil all this down, it sounds to me like you have found a way to make a living giving people a gift that was incredibly important to you. You're facilitating them having the same sort of experience that changed your life. Yes, half of it. Um, half of it is definitely the international education part. Seeing our students change, and they do substantially, some more, some less, yeah. you know, and maybe not as dramatically in two weeks that I did in Belize, but all of them leave completely changed, and it's the most impactful thing. And we got some very top level faculty teaching them some very extremely difficult field classes, phys fish physiology and all kinds of like, you know, very tough stuff and they make them work and the seven, eight, ten hours a right. day. The students, the feedback we often get, you know, what, what sticks afterwards is not what they learned about one thing or another, it's, it's the cultural impact, the, right. the horizon broadening right. part, which is, I guess, not to take anything away from the, the academic education they receive, which is top-notch and absolutely phenomenal what the university is doing and, and how much they've invested also in this project. Um, but I feel that's, that's, that's like my part of it. You know, the, the, the academic part is what the faculty 
comes down to teach them right. that's their expertise but my contribution is this cultural part right. the, the, the eye opening there's a different world out there right um, but I said it was only half the, the, the uh, half the work because yes what we give back to our students which is what I received is very rewarding in itself but also there's the whole other side of local development work social right. development and public health and conservation and local education it's just uh, what we do right so you're funneling the, a lot of the revenue that you're getting from bringing these kids in into development and helping the local people do what they need to do to in, improve their situation as well yeah we, we yeah. have a, a community development fee to our clients right um, Announcedly so. It's not like we're scamming. Them. Right. Like, sure. You know, this is this is what we do. You you need to support local education, local development, and give back right. for what your students receive here. And to their credit, they they do that willingly, and they they think it's a great concept and support us in doing right. so. So, is the University of Miami your only client, or do you work with other universities? No, as we well? have we have several universities. Over the years, we've worked with a dozen of them. The University of Miami is the biggest one. They are the only ones that buy full semesters. Yeah. All of our other clients buy intercession programs and summer sessions. Mm. Um, well, when I say they buy programs, it's really that they buy time slots. Right. Uh, you know, we're a facility in that they timeshare kind right. of. Um, and they always send their own professors and their, and their own, own accreditation. Their, you're, and their own you're just hosting them on the island and, right. and making sure they don't, yeah cause any problems for the local people and right we're, we're the intercultural bridge which is why our new name is very right uh, appropriate and we're facilitating uh, from science permits to visas to host family coordination right. to, to or excursion organization local knowledge we help with curriculum development with the professors when they're new right and the students are all studying marine biology or something involving the ocean right marine sciences is um, what the University of Miami is currently doing with us exclusively it's marine related sciences um, which also goes all the way Sarah teaching coastal anthropology it's you know it's a prep course in the marine science semester credit as a marine science course they also get some marine geology for instance you know we, we hike the volcanoes active volcanoes and looking at that kind of stuff so it's, it's more than what you think of traditional marine science it's yeah. a very holistic approach the University of Miami has um, but yeah at large that that is what they focus on other universities and other programs come I mean we've had a music school coming in recording the sounds of, of Darwin we've had environmental journalism, journalism schools come down. Oh, okay. You know, cool. have a vast variety. We've worked with the business school, you know, kids coming down working with local business for business development. Right. Um, That's fantastic. Yeah, the, the range is very broad of what, what, for us, it's not so important what, the, you know, the students get taught or learn uh, as long as it fits within the realm. But, I mean, even journalism and business development, uh, a lot of things going on in a normal small society it just happens to be in the Galapagos right um, which is an extra incentive I guess to come yeah. and work with us yeah definitely we were saying last night it's one of those places like it's like a mythical place like Kathmandu and Timbuktu and you know these places everyone's heard of but few people have been to definitely cool so now you moving away from the Galapagos you've traveled a lot in Latin America over the years yeah, mm -hmm. uh, being down there, I've bussed around, I, I picked up surfing in the Galapagos, um, you know, in a very isolated back in the day, no f 
cell phone service, no internet, even back when mm -hmm. I got there. Um, so, you know, <laughs> to, to keep sane, uh, very isolated in the Pacific somewhere, you're going to have a hobby, right? And there's right. no movie theater, no malls, no, <clears throat> nothing of what, you know, the average young person would do in, in the U.S. So surfing was um, definitely a lifesaver. And I still very much enjoy it. So I traveled Who all the way. You? Um, some locals, but surfing can only be taught in a very limited fashion. You have to learn it. Right. Um, you know, somebody can explain to you the basic rules, but then you kind of just have to go and do it until you get it. Right. And, it, and it's a very exciting sport, but it's also very, um, yeah, you, you continuously get better and need to practice. And, need to have a certain you know physical shape to be able to properly do it and technique I mean you see other people doing it they've done it since they're kids and it comes totally natural to them to me that wasn't quite as easy picking it up at 26 27 yeah um, but I can hold my own I was just down there a couple of weeks ago and, yeah. and did some solid you know it was a 10-foot swell coming in and it was real fun steep learning curve from what I've heard uh, for surfing, that it's, it, it takes a, a lot of failure before you can actually enjoy it. Yes, it, do, it does take until you, the riding in the wave part, you know, what you see in the, the movies from the uh, world tour or something and on TV, um, that's the easiest part of surfing, so people don't understand, you know, paddling to get in the right position and reading the wave, catching the wave standing up on the wave, mind you, once you've done all those, you know, then you actually have to stand up. Once you're standing on the board, riding in the right direction on the wave, it kind of does it by itself. You know, there's nothing you can, you have to do. Right. Really. Um, then you start doing maneuvers and whatnot, it gets a bit more tricky maybe for your balance and all that. But yeah, the, the vast majority of surfing happens long before you actually stand on your board. Right. Yeah. I, I tried it once. I spent a day trying to learn in Nicaragua. Uh, maybe five years ago, so I was pushing 50, or maybe I was already 50, and uh, it was a perfect place to learn. Just perfect, straight waves coming in, maybe three feet high, and the guy who was teaching me had a long board, and, but I was so out of shape, man. I mean, it's like just pushing up and getting on the board the 10 times, I was exhausted, and, and, and my balance was bad, because you know, I'm not used to standing on a thing like that. I finally got standing crouching sort of and I was moving along and then somehow I fell face forward into the end of the board and just like boom stars it was like you know I hadn't seen stars since I was a little kid and I was underwater and like okay this uh, I've had about enough of this yeah I think it's boogie boarding for me yeah there's a lot of that yeah so in my time down there getting off the islands I ventured further and further surfing south basically from Ecuador um, down the coast of Peru and into Chile and went to Argentina and basically bust around most of Yeah, you were talking America. about the bus ride up from Argentina over the Andes down into yeah, Chile. Yeah, one, one of the cooler trips I've ever done um, or the cooler routes you could possibly drive between Mendoza and Santiago de Chile yeah. across the Andes and through wine country. Um, quite spectacular yeah. huge panoramas and people don't realize how big the scale is down there it's like the Himalayas the scale is just unimaginable until you see it it's incredible and you've been to Patagonia as well uh, northern Patagonia yes yeah. um, went down to the from uh, Buenos Aires to the peninsula Valdez they call the other Galapagos mm. it's also quite isolated and a lot of endemic species and very cool wildlife 
and then across to Bariloche, it's a skiing resort um, on the Argentinian side, and then up to Mendoza from there. Right. How old are you now? Th I am 35. 35, okay. So where do you go from here? That's a good question. Um, I came back to Miami from the Galapagos, uh, handing over administration down there to uh, a local woman, um, also called Sarah, actually, interestingly enough. <laughs> just coincidence, though. Uh, Sarah Luz, actually, is her second name. That's a cool name. Um, so Sarah Luz runs a show down there now. We have a staff of eight on site. Um, and I'm back in Miami. I was offered a PhD by the University of Miami. And, and I'm still working on that. Um, maybe another year and a half or two years until I'm done. And when I was here, I was, you know, first focusing on stuff that I had neglected down there when you start an operation, right? So website and marketing and sales and fiscal, financial, you know, getting things in order that, you know, when you're a one-man show on an island in the Pacific, you know, you kind of not worry about the U.S. paperwork so much. Um, I hope nobody listens to this from the IRS. But um, so all of that is, of course, now in order. And then, um, uh, you know, I was kind of at a point here where I was like, well, what am I going to, what am I going to do with my life? I've, I set out from Germany to get a master's and then I, you know, there was no real plan and all I ever wanted was, you know, this very cliche, I want to make a difference, right? And, okay, well, that, don't we all? Well, that doesn't mean anything really. So I, I found Galapagos and found this little piece where I actually saw the opportunity and for better or for worse and seized it too or you know got pushed into it people were like do it do it so so i did it and then that was the plan right it was the impossible thing to do it was legally impossible you know starting an ngo is difficult starting it in another country is yet more difficult right. starting it in the galapagos with all the protective regulation of special immigration right. very remote culture you know very kind of isolated community you know it's hard to break into all that was basically impossible and i don't think anybody actually thought i could do it except for maybe my dad to give him credit he supported me all along mm. um and so there it was you know it was five years into it or yeah six years into it and it was more than i'd ever imagined it would be all of a sudden for you know for reasons that when when um really started buying semesters is when all of a sudden it was like okay now this 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 happened right this we, is now here to stay it's no longer struggling selling my in. wristwatch right. to be you know able to like pay the half-time staff member that i had at the time which was sarah Luce. she was my part-time secretary i was like i can't deal with all the paperwork can you like help me get order into this office right and you know working with some various volunteers left and right um, so we're innovating a little bit here and there. We started a, a volunteering program. Mm -hmm. um, so you accept volunteers from outside of Ecuador? Yes, we uh, do work with international volunteers um, that work in several projects that we run uh, in conservation, education, and public health. Um, and what sort of qualifications do they have to have? They're, they're different depending on the position. So if you want to work in the hospital, you have to have some sort of a medical background. Um, and we have positions in the hospital, you know, they help in intake or they help in, in the statistics or they can help in the lab if you're qualified. Mm. Um, or if you, you know, work in the, we have a tortoise breeding center down there run by the national park mm. that we have a cooperation agreement with. So we support them with, with, uh, 
project funds and, and volunteers and requirements are can you, can you work physically in you know hot outdoor type con conditions a basic level of Spanish is required for uh, all of our positions actually um, if you want to teach English as TAs in the schools and work with the local English teachers uh, you need to have some sort of um, English teaching certification English is a second right. language so it varies on our website there's there's a, there's a tab for right. volunteering that if people are interested be more than welcome to go and and help us out we we, we always need people and right. good people even better it's a great way I imagine to to integrate into what's going on really quickly you don't just show up and stay in a guest house and try to meet somebody you're, you're like in there you're working you're connected to the turtle people or the school or the hospital and right and you're also part of us so, you know right the, the IOI has eight permanent staff but then there's professors around there's a student group around there's so other volunteers all of a sudden you yeah. you know 40 50 people community right um i think a lot of people want to travel but they're afraid to just head out on their own so this is actually a really cool way to go somewhere really interesting but have some support when you get there you have support and yeah. you, you have a purpose too a lot right. of people feel that you know they don't want to just go somewhere and take they want to give back and, right and, and volunteering is is a good way of doing that right um gotta have to be careful i mean whom you're volunteering with there's some organizations that you know will the the experience is is focused on the experience for the volunteer right rather than actually being helpful <clears throat> locally right you know so that's a different focus and i i do believe that we have a very much a local focus where you can where you come to actually help right and yes you have to pay us to pay for your cost and when all funds that are left over go to the project and the project is worthy it's not our projects we didn't design this for volunteers right it's local need that is requested to us we get you know requests for proposal from the national parks like can you help us with volunteers in this right. the hospital comes to us and says can you help us with this and we're like right. sure so what can we do we either have professional staff working with them or you know if, if it's suitable uh, and then you know we we offer volunteers and we offer funding and we offer you know we fundraise for certain certain projects like, for instance we've in the hospital people are like what do you do in the hospital we've replaced all of their mercury um, based equipment mm. thermometers blood pressure meters etc you know and gave them infrared ones right and we fundraised for that for an indiegogo campaign for instance oh really but I we was also ask have if you've done that yeah, yeah we've done that it's it's difficult <clears throat> fundraising crowdsource fundraising i yeah. admire people who do it successfully we are, we're having a tough time doing it um but with the volunteers, it's actually proven to be a, a quite a synergistic model. Mm. You know, the, the client or the volunteer comes and has this wonderful experience and en enjoys what they do, and they have a real sense of purpose too, and they can see where their money goes and what we do with it. And you know, it's 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 very synergistic, and the community gets something out of it. And we have these projects with the community that are long-standing projects. You know, it's not like often volunteers. You come somewhere, you want to volunteer, but you have two weeks. Right. When what you, you start with, you know, yeah. carte blanche, what are you going to do in two weeks? Yeah. It's very limited. Yeah. Whereas with an organization like ours, you get plugged in, you know, you're right, you're right there hitting the ground running. Right. Because um, the project's ongoing with our staff. Right. Right. Um, so, yeah, cool. I came back to Miami and, uh, and deciding what to do 
we expanded into um, into uh, into Cuba recently. Oh, so right. uh, Cuba and Miami is a very hot topic, of course, and right. Cuba is opening politically. Right. And the embargo is going um, out the door, and um, the Cuban side is softening up their ideology with the imperialist neighbors to the north. And right. um, I saw uh, again. I was my face was put into it by a friend and neighbor uh, where I live here in Miami, and they were saying, well. What about, what about Cuba? And I said, what about Cuba? And they're like, well, you're looking for new innovations for the Galapagos. You had designed, you know, study abroad, now volunteering, and, you know, public health is a new topic we took on. So we had, like, little innovations, but within the structure of we are a U.S.-based organization helping in the Galapagos. And so this guy told me, like, where's your... You just told me about your organization, and you didn't mention Galapagos at all. You mentioned community development, public right. health, conservation, education, international this, intercultural that. Right, it's transportable. You, you never actually mentioned Galapagos until, you know, the very end of your conversation. Where are you doing it at Galapagos? So, all of a sudden, there was this new idea of, uh, yeah, no shit, we can actually, this is a, we have a, a, a franchise almost mm. model mm. that we can do somewhere else. And... Cuba actually has a lot of, a lot of characteristics currently um, that I saw in the Galapagos, or that, in retrospect, were in place in the Galapagos ten years ago. They were very isolated for a long time. Uh, there's a lot of tourism pressure and interest in in it, so it's it's a very like a hot spot of attention. Yeah, certainly and. Um, they have very little infrastructure in terms of transport and communication, uh, hindering the, 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 the tourism. So they didn't have, they don't really have the extractive industries focus like the Galapagos did in fisheries, but they have very much a government spending based economy. Right. Basically, there's no free market economy at all. Yeah. Um, so there's massive economic changes ahead for Cuba, um, and. Similar to the Galapagos, is very little civic society, um, no nonprofit sector. Again, government provides everything. Mm. Um, and as as it's opening, and there will be lots of changes ahead. Um, new concepts will be needed, and I, I feel that our organization is well suited. Um, maybe we're too small to really, you know, help Cuba at large, but at least to assist in the effort of. bringing Cuba into the 21st century and not doing so by helping from the outside you know it's not like oh yeah we're going to we're going to fix Cuba no Cubans need to fix Cuba and you know and Cuba needs to grow but that's kind of what we do we 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 want to work with Cuba at large I mean it sounds kind of like brand right? right with Cuba and the Cubans right uh, very big country Hello, very Cuba. big island exactly yeah. so i mean We've we I've I've gone a couple of times and we're actually operational now um, through a corporation with Mark Cuba, another organization that has worked uh, in Cuba with people-to-people -people trips and science uh, for 15 years. Um, with my buddy Fernando, Fernando was actually also uh, Sarah's student. Oh, really? At UM, coincidentally, and I met him or like ran into him at Sarah's birthday. So yeah, speaking about naming my children, Sarah, right? Yeah. So 
Sarah again somehow was Sarah, involved in being. If the you're Nexus. listening to this, Sarah, <laughs> do you want to say her last Sarah name? Sarah Meltoff, sure. Yeah, yeah so she's, she's great. She's yeah, she's cast seeds out into the world that are sprouting all over the place. You know, and and I've seen it. I've actually been on committees now for students with her, as an outside committee member, um, and she just clicks with certain people and really fosters them and and. I've seen it again happening again. She does this. It's not just like the I click with her. It's just like she does these right. things to people. I right. don't know how she does it, but right. you know, I've seen it in other people now that then go off and do this phenomenal project of like a an educational science network in in Burma, for instance. Uh. This was the student we uh, sat on the committee together with. You know, just completely out there ideas and. These really cool projects that she supports. Um, so Cuba, uh, we are working with this organization, and we got introduced to a bunch of local contacts in Cuba, and listened a lot, and got connected to uh, two biosphere reserves and, and the respective national parks running them, and their administration, and the, the, the University of Havana. We're about to sign a, a cooperation agreement with them, mm. and. Um, just really working within um, what they already do. How right. can we help you do the science you already do? Right. I've seen what they do. I mean, they have zero resources, yeah. and they do incredible things with it. Yeah, you know, so nothing. Something we could not achieve because we're just so dependent on our stuff. Right. right. Um, so yeah, we're, we're this is early stages, but we're going to run our first group in August, actually, um, to go to Cuba. And it's an educational dive trip, actually. Still a couple of spots open if, if people are interested. We got two slots open still. Sign me up. Sign educational up, yeah. dive trip to Cuba. Hell yeah. yeah. And the reefs down there are spectacular. There's so little industry and so little right. uh, development that they are basically untouched in some of the best reefs in, in, that I've ever seen. Wow. Uh, certainly the best I've seen since my first trip to Belize and, and, hmm. and Glover's Reef out there. Right. Similar topography, I guess. And, yeah, uh, completely untouched. No tourism out there. Um, so yeah, yeah, it's going to be exciting. That, that is exciting. That's amazing. And the, the concept there is that um, we can't, in Cuba, work with the public sector as we do in the Galapagos, um, legally from the Cuban side. Uh, the Cuban government provides the education there, and they don't want foreign assistance in that. Mm. Um, similar in conservation, etc. But uh, at the university level, it's different. So whereas we can't run our programs down there, what we do is we support the, lo the local universities, for instance, to do what they do. And, and they know what they're doing. They're very educated people down there and um, do amazing things. So we, the, the, we channel our, the resources that you know, come from these trips uh, into local science mm. and, and support change from within rather than right. forcing it from the outside right well this is great man it, it's it's always very uh encouraging and inspirational to meet people who are you know successful doing what they want to do and and that has uh the work has a positive effect on the world that's great <laughs> yeah I, I hope so and you know little little bits here and there yeah and yeah. that's maybe as much as we can do as individuals. Right. Now, what kind of advice would you give to, you know, your 23-year-old self 
heading out into the world. <laughs> oh man, <laughs> if you could. That's a lot of advice to be given to it's that hard. guy. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But I mean, what what is it? What you know? I mean, I don't want to put you. We were talking. We were joking last night about how you're sort of uncomfortable tooting your own horn and all that. But you've done something extraordinary. You're 35 years old. You've got, you know, an expanding business. You're you're doing meaningful work. You're making a good living at it. You're living where you want to live in the world. I mean, there are a lot of things you've accomplished that you know are very high ambitions for people what is it what was the key was it just that you were open to to what came to you was it that you were surrounded by people who said hey man why don't you do this because you the way you phrased it it was you didn't really think to do it until people around you told you to i don't know if you were just being generous there or what maybe a little bit i think i was if I maybe a little negative spin on that, I was careless, mm. and I can't, you know, really recommend younger people being careless. <laughs> don't no, don't be careless. But kind of that's what it what it took. It was just like, you know, I just I I broke with convention. I was just like, I don't want the conventional route. I don't right. want to do what everybody does. Right, it's boring and it's also, you know, I was like, well, well, if everybody's doing it, there's lots of competition. It's got to be difficult and whatever. Right? Mm. So, you know, it might have been even like an uh, evasion strategy almost. Right. You know, it's like, well, if, if if I'm doing something unique, then nobody else is doing it. Otherwise, everybody would be doing it already. Right. And so that kind of led, led me, open-mindedly led me one one step to the next. And, yeah, there was certain people nudging me, you know, you got to do this along the way. But that really wasn't wasn't I think what did it what did it was daring to to do the next step every time right not pulling back and as I'm getting older I'm noticing that this quality fades Mm. we get comfortable in life and this and that right you know like how do I really want to know do all that and whatnot back then I didn't really worry about it too much like this is a cool idea so let's do it so I guess the advice is just do it don't don't bit get held back by society. What does society got to tell you anyways? You know, society yeah. gives you a conventional norm and that's just the average of everybody else. Right. And I never want to be average and never, I don't know. I I'd never had a goal, I guess. I always, I admire, I have friends from high school that um, just came to visit us actually here in Miami because he always, wanted to be a pilot and he knew he was going to be a pilot and wanted to be a pilot and that's he was going to be a pilot sure enough he's a pilot for Lufthansa now and flies the 380 from Frankfurt to Miami mm. on his regular routes so whenever he does he spends a night with us because they fly back the next day right and then I've always envied that I guess yeah. like, man you always knew what you wanted to be and yeah. that's what you did and that's what you do is he happy He's happy enough, but also it's kind of like, you know, it's like, well, he goes and he sits in a cockpit. Right. Very reputable job, pays well, you right. know, lots of responsibility, and he's flying the top, top end plane even, you know, and all that. So great. But in the end, he goes in and he flies and he flies like the long distance routes. They only fly in like four of them a month or so. Mm. So, you know, he gets the training and he needs to stay reasonably fit and he sits down in his cockpit and it's like... It's <laughs> no pun intended, autopilot, right? Right. I mean, you just, that's, that's his daily life. And I've always wanted something that was more 
innovative is maybe the word or more demanding mm. uh, you know I this is where my creativity comes out you know I'm not artsy at all like I can't draw for shit I can't play an instrument unfortunately I, you know none of that ever worked for me and 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 I would still think I'm a creative person but not in the arts somehow right so I'm you know this is like institutional design I guess or project creation you know it's, right. that's where I get creative and this is what I like doing Cooking is the other one, I guess, by the way. Right. I really enjoy cooking, too. But um, So, yeah, just just dare to think freely. Don't don't follow convention. And, and yes, it's possible. Just as long as you really want to do it. Not everything, of course, but a lot of things are possible. And there's still innovation to be had. You know, not, not everything has been invented. And still room for improvement. Lots right. of it. Yeah, there's huge need for all sorts of relief, you know. There's, I mean, and what you did was you, you found complementary needs. You know, there's the need for students to go somewhere interesting and have a program sort of ready-made so the university doesn't have to deal with all that stuff, which is just too much for them to, you know, figure out the logistics of housing 30 students in the Galapagos. And then, you've, then there's the need of the local community for the stuff that that money can do and these volunteers can do, and you put them together. and right. The synergy, it. I guess, is yeah. what, what did it and does it every, every, over and over. And also, you know, the synergy the other way around. Like, I'm, what am I actually doing? You know, you, you spin that the other way around, I'm basically doing not anything. Right? Like everybody could do all these things all by themselves. But I'm, all I'm doing is putting them all together. You're the middleman. And I'm yeah. not... I'm not innovating here much at all. The innovation is the network, the connection, the right. nexus. Well, you've got it's it's almost like like very basic business. You've got a product, you've got a, a, a demand, you've got the supply and the demand, and you put them together and you take your profit and that's the business, right? But what you're doing is this. It's not a it's not a plastic fucking doodad from China. It's a learning experience. It's it's something that's uh, very valuable on both sides. That's, I think we need, so the business model isn't wrong, it's just the problem is we're selling shit to each other. If we were selling quality experience to each other, learning, you know, deepening of, of understanding of other cultures, things like that, that's really worth selling. That's something you can get excited about, you know? It's, yeah, that's a good place to be, the middleman. And it's, and it, yes, I agree. And it, I do think it translates into business. I do. <laughs> I must remark, though, that this is not a business; it's a nonprofit. Nonprofit. It yeah. runs as a business. Um, many people don't understand. We, well, a nonprofit but, and for-profit yeah. run exactly the same. The difference yeah. is, when you have you know a dollar over at the end of the day from selling your doodad, did you call it? Yes. Yeah. Then you know you don't put it in your pocket, but right. you reinvest it into some sort of cause. Right. For right. nonprofit. Yeah, it's a flow of value, is is what I mean. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, innovating it and expanding it has has been fun. We'll see where it, where it takes me. Yeah. It's, the job has shifted substantially. You know, when I first went out there, I, I was the guy leading the you know kids into the field. I was exploring, yeah. I was learning to surf. I was it's learning the curse to of success, man. Spanish, and now I'm sitting at a desk in Miami. I ran right. away from the desk job right before I came to Miami. Right. I was working for VW as a consultant, right. and and I hated it. That's why I came to Miami in the first place. I quit my job because I didn't want to be at the desk nine to five. And yeah. it's, it's exactly full circle where I've come now. So I got to figure out a way of, of maintaining that you know excitement, right. work-life balance, 
and, and, and not just run an organization. That, that's, that's the new challenge. Well, in 35 years, we'll do this again and see. <laughs> Which, I, I mean, I, I, I'm conscious of not wanting to uh, sort of focus on any sort of discontent you might feel because this is your this is your business, this is your baby, you know. But I also understand that yeah, as you get successful, you end up in a position that you never wanted to be in. But you know, you sort of the the mountain grows under you, and next thing you know, you're in a different place. Yeah, it's very true. Yeah. I mean, we've we've talked about you know, and I've, I've I've squeezed you a bit for information. It's like, what do you, how did you write that book? You know, where where are you going next? What do you do? Right. So, I'd, I think that's also a, a, another thing that um, I achieved, if you will, um, is being able to let go, hand it off. Mm. You know, the Galapagos is now, for the most part, independently running. And I don't need to be there, at least not on the operational parts. Right. Um, so that, that's 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 a natural progression, I guess, and also it's a very good thing, especially in development type work, um, to start something and then make sure it's being run locally. Right. I, I do believe that. Yeah. Hand, it, hand it over. Um, was part of, of, of the same concept of, of stewardship creation, I guess. Right. And since well, I maybe. left, it's now conceived as a local institution, inter interestingly enough. Right. Well, that's cool. That's great. And maybe, the, maybe that's the progression that you, you know, you do this Cuban thing and then you write a book about how to do this. Maybe. Maybe. Maybe I'll write a book someday. I don't know. Sarah, I'm, I'm not sure I'm, I'm that much of a writer, but. Well, it's. it's it's a pain in the ass. <laughs> Get a ghostwriter. Fair enough. I'll start on, on podcast interviews. Yeah, yeah. All right, Johan, thank you very much. Say again one with the website. The website is the Intercultural Outreach Initiative, IOI.NGO. NGO. Okay. www.ioi.ngo. So check it out if anybody wants to go volunteer in the Galapagos. That's a good place to find out about it. Thanks, man. Thanks a lot. I hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. Thank you to everybody who supports the podcast through Patreon.com. You can decide how much you want to give the podcast, a buck a month, five bucks a month, ten bucks a month, or you can get completely crazy and give 20 bucks a month or more. Or you can give nothing. If you don't have any cash, don't worry about it. Just enjoy the podcast and tell your friends. The other way you can support the podcast is if you buy shit through Amazon.com or you know someone who does please direct them through the link on my page chrisryanphd.com you click on that baby once bookmark the landing page on amazon and then eight to ten percent of whatever you spend will come to support the podcast at no extra cost to you or your loved ones thank you to basin and range for that opening music at the beginning of the podcast very funky little tune there uh, called The Bright Side of the Sun, I believe. You can find out more about them at basinandrangeband.com. If you want to talk about the podcast with other listeners, a good place to do that is on Reddit. Just search Tangentially Speaking, all one word. There's a community of a couple hundred people in there chatting about the episodes. I drop in occasionally and say hello, answer questions, whatever. Uh, thanks to Shore Design T-shirts. Our garage is full of them. My mom has them all organized as only she can. And Julie, thank you to Julie, my mom. She'll send those t-shirts out to you if you order them. Everything we 
we've got in stock is from Shore Design T-shirts in Thailand, and you can check out their webpage as well for other designs. Thank you to Carsey Blanton. You can find out more about Carsey Blanton at carseyblanton.com, C-A-R-S-I-E-B-L-A-N-T-O-N.com. She wrote and performed the song you're about to hear, which is called Smoke Alarm, and it's a reminder to carpe fucking diem while you still can, because, ladies and gentlemen, you're going to die one day. Here's to you, Bennett. He said, baby, what's a big deal? Feel what you want to feel. Say what you want to say. You're going to die one day. For example, I could kiss you just because I want to. What's the difference if you turn away? I'm going to die one day. Why do you waste your time thinking about your reputation? Trying to meet an expectation, wondering what they're gonna say. When everyone you've ever known is headed for a headstone. I don't want to give the end away, but we're gonna die one day. Your body is an animal, doesn't ask for much. A little music and a soft touch Why don't you let it out to play Your heart is in a birdcage Singing in your chest You wanna shut it up but give it a rest You're gonna die one day Why do we waste our time Thinking about a reputation Running from a It's a big deal if you want to be free. Say what you want to feel. Spend the night with me. I'm gonna take you up in my arms. And if we must go down, we'll go singing to the smoke alarms. We'll dance into the ground. 